Amen. Let's pray one more time together. Well, Heavenly Father, um, we thank you so much again for the promises of your word that even in this passage, so many marvelous promises are given to us here. Just the, just the truth that we could be encouraged not to lose heart. Something that all of us have done at times. Something that plagues us all various seasons and because of certain circumstances. But we pray, God, that as we look upon Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith, that as we look upon Him, that the miracle of Your sanctifying work in our life would take place, that You would conform us, Lord, from one degree of glory to the next as we gaze upon Jesus. And so, Lord, give us a greater understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ that we may see the beauty of the King. We ask Your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. We are going to be going down to verse 2 uh, today. We didn't. I'm not going to make it to verse 3, so just thought I'd let you know that ahead of time so that you wouldn't feel disappointed, but hopefully you will understand once we're there that it's too rich. There's just too much here. A sermon could be made just out of the phrase, fixing your eyes on Jesus. That is so... That's so monumental. That is so massive of a reality. That is so life-changing. That is so uh, soul-preserving, soul-empowering, soul-satisfying. If we understand what it is that we're looking at, or really who it is, but how we are to look as much as who we are to look at. So this um, this portion of Scripture is tremendous. We're looking at what it means to run the race set before us. Last week we looked at what we could call the gravity of sin. We talked about the weight, the encumbrances. We talked about the hindrances. And today I want to look at not the gravity of sin, but I want to look at the glory of Christ. Because that's really what is set before us. Now, I want to also bring in a sort of a counterbalance to what was spoken last week. Because you may think that a sermon like what we heard last week with the emphasis on run, 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 that emphasis is a call for us, in a sense, to sort of pull ourselves up by our own moral bootstraps and that the energy that we need is to be found on the treadmill of self-performance and self-righteousness and legalistic Pharisaism. It is not. And what this passage now does is it shows us that it is not. The energy, the effort, the agonizing, the, uh, the, the exertion that is being called for in this passage is not found within ourselves. The power doesn't come from within. It actually comes from the object of our faith. It comes from the glory of Christ. It is the soul-strengthening, soul-empowering glory 
of Jesus. And that is what this is telling us, that Christianity is an exercise in the soul-empowering contemplation of Jesus Christ. Our whole life is a obsession to know one person, or really, from a Trinitarian perspective, of course, we can say three persons. But here, what's presented to us is the Son and the supremacy of the Son, the effectiveness of the Son, the power of the Son to strengthen us, practically speaking, of course. We're always to look at Christ. We're never to take our eyes off of Him. We are always to render to Him affection, love with all purity, First John. We're always to be looking to Him as our example for everything. And that is because if you look with me at Second Corinthians chapter 3, or I can just read it to you, what is going on there is that what we find in the person of Jesus Christ, literally, as Paul is going to go on to say, in His very face, in His press upon, which means His presence, His face, right? What we find there is the glory of God revealed to us. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in the mirror the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. And then kind of resumes that idea of glory in, in chapter 4, verse 6, where he says, For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. You think the presence of Jesus is significant? You think looking upon the glory of Jesus is significant? It is where the light of the knowledge of the glory of God is found. It's not simply a calling, brothers and sisters, to uh, sort of tantalize our sense of intellectual curiosity. It is not just sort of passively collecting data about Jesus and trying to piece him together through abstract theology like so many dried up and dead scholars do. It's more than that. It's a contemplation for the purpose of conformity. It's a contemplation for the purpose of being like him, being more like him. We treasure him in order to imitate him. And the reason why the Christian life may seem so daunting at times is because the mold of our sanctification is so vast, it's so lofty. We are being conformed not to any lesser degree than anything other than the Son of God. God is not conforming us to the pattern or the outline or the example or the glory or the beauty of some angelic host. Glorious as that is. He is conforming us into the very doxa of His Son. Glory of His Son. And this is what Scripture says all over the place. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, Oh, that I may know Him and be conformed to His death. That I may attain to the resurrection. Therefore, we want to complete what we started last week. We talked about running the race that's set before us by what? 
by understanding the legacy of those around us, the great cloud of witness, we talked about that, and also running the race set before us by what? By understanding the gravity of sin. Now, running the race set before us by focusing on the forerunner of our faith. The forerunner of our faith. That's what he is. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2, please. Hebrews chapter 2. Because uh, in a practical way, we are called everywhere, all over the Bible, to imitate Jesus, to be like Jesus, to follow in his steps, to obey him, to be conformed to him, as I have read. But specifically to the book of Hebrews, this race is a imitation of our great high priest. It's going after Him who is our forerunner. Look at uh, verse 9. We do not see Him. Now notice that there. The, again, the emphasis on sight. The sight metaphor of Hebrews. We do see Him. I think I said not, but we do see Him contemplating the person and work of Christ who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Because of the suffering of death, we could say, He was crowned with glory and honor so that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for Him for whom are all things and through whom are all things, namely God the Father, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation, that's Jesus, through suffering for Both He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason He is not ashamed to be called their brethren. The reason why Jesus is not ashamed to be called our brethren, the reason why Jesus came and stood in perfect solidarity with His people, perfect identification with His people, He was He was one of us, He was numbered with us, He was seen with us, is because we have one Father. We are His brethren. If this is the work of the Father, and it most certainly is, the only question remaining is how uh, how does this contemplation happen? How is this accomplished in our life? Now the overarching answer to this is simple. By faith. That's how. That faith, however, is not unaided. We could say that faith feeds on Christ. That's what it says in John chapter 6. That's what he is calling for when he says, eat of my flesh, drink of my blood. This will only happen when we fix our eyes on Christ as the object of our faith. And now listen, and as we trust Christ as the author and the perfecter of our faith, and as we imitate Him, as the supreme model or the outline of our faith. So first, Christ as the object of our faith. When he says here, because the, the crucial word in, back in Hebrews chapter 12 here, verse 2, the crucial word, of course, is the participle fixing your eyes, right? It's a very colorful word, as a matter of fact, this word. It's actually a compound word. It's uh, from apa, and it's from uh, arao, which means to look. Now, apa is a preposition that, that, that means away from, right? And so what is he saying there by, by, by compounding this word together to look away from? I thought we were supposed to look 
to, <laughs> right? Not away from Jesus, but to Jesus. And so what the author is saying is something like that you look away from everything else in your looking to Jesus. That's literally what he's saying. Just like a just like a runner, right? Go back to the race metaphor of Hebrews. Just like a runner, an Olympic runner who's competing in a race, in order for him to reach the finish line at the with the with the intended with the intended uh, desire to win, he has to, in a sense, look past everything else. I mean, imagine a marathon runner. There he is. He's running around, and he gets distracted by people taking pictures of him and people standing around. Look what he's doing over there. You would not win the, win the race. You, you would certainly falter. In the same way, this word is telling us, look beyond, look past every other available object of your gaze and strain to look forward and unto and upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, we, we've already seen this in principle. Look back at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24. We, 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 we talked about this, but the... The idea of looking again is there. And we see it with the example of Moses. Moses did this very thing. He looked past certain things in order to fix his gaze firmly upon the reward. Very similar context. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, this is Hebrews 11.24, He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking, same word, looking to the reward. Same idea, same word, same participle. Uh, uh, Moses was looking past all that dazzled and all that glittered in Egypt. And he was looking to the true treasure, which is the reward, the everlasting reward, the eschaton, the end, the finish line. Everything to which the reproaches of Christ was pointing forward to. The same way we're to do the very same thing. We're to look past all other distractions so that we are progressing in the faith. Ask yourself, brother and sister, are you stuck looking at other things? Have you been so distracted by your trials that the focus is no longer on the goal, on the plumb line, on the object of our faith, the soul-strengthening, soul-satisfying, soul-sufficiency of Jesus Christ. It's not on that anymore. Now the, now the, the, the focus has shifted and, 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 and one way it has everything to do with self. Whether you're focused on self, whether you're focused on circumstances, whether you're focused on fears or threats or anxieties or depressions or doubts or self or morbid self introspection that has immobilized you and you can no longer take the next step. I love watching those races on YouTube where the race that the runner either got injured or something happened to them and they're literally crawling towards the finish line in utter exhaustion. And the other runners who have gone before, they're literally pleading them, come on, come on. And they cross the race and they just collapse in the puddle of tears. That's Christianity. 
It's not going to be this quick hundred yard dash and it's over painless, you know, it's pain free. It's, it's, it's sort of this easy skipping along. No. What this scripture is telling us, just like the whole book of Hebrews we just read in chapter two, God has determined to perfect us through suffering. Isn't that incredible? A huge percentage of my job as a preacher, as a pastor, is to prepare you to suffer. <laughs> Think about that. What a calling, right? <laughs> to prepare you to suffer. To prepare you for reality. And there's just something about life, wouldn't you agree, that zaps reality right out of our perspective. <laughs> we, 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 we buy into the commercials. <laughs> That life is to be this sterile, sort of, you know, very clean, sort of germ-free experience. No! Not at all. And I've seen brothers and sisters who have passed that threshold. I'll never forget my dear friend, um, my, my, my really close friend who was recently stricken with um, uh, kidney failure. My friend Mike. I went to visit him in the hospital and I thought, you know, he probably never thought in a million years that he would be sitting in the hospital, right? His body failing him, especially having lived a life of being a gym rat, working out every day, lifting weights. He was a power lifter. This guy used to bench press, you know, four or five hundred pounds. And now one little thing on his body is failing and he can't do anything for himself, you know? He was, it was so bad. I mean, he had people in the hospital changing his diaper. I mean, this is, guys, if, if God so wills that he gives us, you know, what does the scripture say? 80 years by reason of strength. You know, the race is not going to get easier. If anything, it's just going to get harder and harder and harder. But what is this scripture telling us? As we reach the moment of exhaustion where we feel as if we cannot take the next step. As we reach that moment of exhaustion where we've, we think we've given every last drop of exertion. What we're, what we're being told is that the way forward and upward is by looking. Looking past that. Past the fact that your physical body is decaying. Past the fact that your outer man is perishing. And and to the fact that Christ is going to give you a glorified, renewed, resurrected body. That is such a glorious promise. Hydration. If you are a runner in a race, and if you don't stay hydrated, I was reading this, I was reading an article on this, you can actually suffer permanent physical damage in your body. If you do not maintain proper hydration... You can develop kidney problems, permanent, and and, and all sorts of different maladies that you can incur because you fail to hydrate your body properly. You know what, you know what this verse is telling us? What this verse is telling us is that if we do not learn to hydrate our hearts with Jesus Christ, our souls can be permanently affected and damaged. And I've seen it, I've seen it sadly, walking in the faith for 20 years, 30 years, and still spiritually immature, still on the milk, can't handle the meat, 
You've been in the faith for decades and you still can't handle meat. Hebrews already talked about that. That is a contradiction for the Christian whose, whose, whose optimum calling is to grow. Grow in grace. What does Hebrews say? By now you ought to be teachers by now. And sadly, you are still spiritually anemic. Well, this happens, brothers and sisters, in our lives. And, and you want to zap your sanctification. Take your eyes off of Jesus and focus them upon yourself. And you will zap the strength right out. You will zap the vitality right out of your sanctification. And you will hinder yourself. But I want to leave this point with a promise, and that's this. That if we are being commanded, fix your eyes. Fixing your eyes, which is a attendant circumstantial participle. This is how you're going to do it. This is instrumental. This is the means by which you are going to run the race. By fixing your eyes. If we are being told that, then the reality is this. That Jesus actually possesses the ability to strengthen us. To comfort us. To vivify us. To support us in this race. To hydrate us. In our race. Look with me to Hebrews chapter 4 please. Foundational, fundamental, but do not let the familiarity of this passage undermine its potency. Hebrews chapter 4 beginning in verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. Support factor number one. Jesus understands. Jesus knows by virtue of His humanity, He understands our weakness. He can sympathize with us. Why? Because He is one who has been tempted in all things, even as we are, yet without sin. And notice... You know, usually we use this passage as a point of controversy. How could he, what's the nature of the temptation? Was he really tempted? Is it sinful for him to be tempted? But really, we're working backwards. What we should be saying is, look, the fact that is without sin does not undermine his capacity to sympathize. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. For what? So that we can have the life-preserving power of Jesus Christ helping us in our race so that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. You want to talk about continually gazing, uh, 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 looking on Jesus? You know, this concept of looking is metaphorical, right? Fixing your eyes. It's a metaphor. I want to give you another metaphor. John chapter 15, verse 1. This is a metaphor that is actually rooted and grounded in Isaiah chapter 5 and in other places where there the people of Israel are told to abide in Yahweh, who's the vine. That's where did Jesus get this language of, I am the vine, you are the branches, if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. Where did he get all that? Right? Jesus got that directly out of Isaiah chapter 5 and other places. Matter of fact, my Bible has a footnote directly to Isaiah 5. And what does Jesus say there? I'm the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Now, some people are in one of those categories. Either you are a branch not bearing fruit, which means you are not a productive, regenerate branch. 
that will be cut off and cast into the fire. Or you are a, 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 a you are a fruit bearing branch that may need to bear more fruit and therefore necessitates a pruning so that you will be rid of unnecessary things that are sucking the life out of you so that you will produce the fruits of repentance. You're already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. You see how it is not yourself. It's not you. It's not your energy. It's not your strength. You're not on the treadmill of self-performance. That is not what Christianity is. It is not of you. You can do nothing. What does he say? He says, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the, vi- I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit for apart from me. And oh, Jesus was not mincing any words. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you have a Christian walk that is fruitless, And this is good for us, right? To be able to examine one another. Examine others. Look and see. Not in a judgmental sort of over, you know, looking down people's nose. But genuinely, in terms of discernment, when we're dealing with someone where there just seems to be a lack, uh, something's wrong. Well, we need to ask, if there's no fruit, there's no root. And sometimes that's the case. If somebody, as Jesus is saying, if somebody is not attached to the vine, then that branch will not produce fruit. And a fruitless branch, according to Jesus, is a contradiction. There must be evidence. Evidence of faith. Jesus is the object of our faith. And not only that, but Jesus is also the originator of our faith. What Jesus is doing here as we look at this phrase, He is not, we are to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And by that, what, what, what the Word of God is affording to us is that Jesus Christ takes absolute personal responsibility whatsoever, altogether, for the security, the protection, and the preservation of His people. Look with me to John. Back to John. I was a lot in John in this sermon, and that was very refreshing for me. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 37. Emphatically, this is unmistakable theology that Jesus is teaching here about the preservation of the saints. All that the Father gives me will come to me. John six thirty-seven, And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of Him who sent me, that all that He has given me, I lose nothing. What a phrase. All that, all that He has given me, when did He give them to Him? We would say, theologically, that is part of the covenant of redemption, the intra-Trinitarian covenant where Father, Son, and Spirit make a pact in order to redeem a particular people through a particular means, namely through the means of Jesus dying on the cross by faith. It says that everyone who beholds the Son, interesting, right? Because there's the sight metaphor again. Who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life and I myself will raise Him up on the last 
day. Matter of fact, in John chapter 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer, Jesus prays on myriads of levels for us. He prays that we would remain in the name, God's name, which is really a way of talking, of speaking about the revelation of who He is, that we abide in that, that we remain in that. Also, in John chapter 17, verse 14, we are also... He is also interceding for us that we would persevere through a sinful world, not that we'd be taken out of the world, and also that we would be kept from the evil one. John continues this theology, by the way, in 1 John, when he says the evil one does not touch us. And also, he prays for our unity, verse 21, John 17. And he also prays for our ultimate and final glorification in heaven. This, What is this? This is just an extension of what Hebrews has already taught us. Look at Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25. You know this. Hebrews 7:25. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since this is the reason he always lives to make intercession for them. This is the way that the originator of our faith, the author and perfecter, will keep us firm until the end. He is interceding for us. He stands as our intercessor. Matter of fact, in the book of Hebrews, Jesus Christ is the author. So there's origination. He is also our intercessor. And so there is our sustainer. Right? And he is also our perfecter. He is the author, sustainer, and perfecter of our faith. Any scriptures come to mind? I got one. I should, right? Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. You got that one memorized? You should because it is fuel for the race. It's hydration. Philippians 1, 6. I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. What a glorious assurance afforded to the Philippian church. Finally, Jesus Christ, not just the object of our faith, He is not just the originator of our faith and the perfecter of it, therefore, but He is also what we could call the outline of our faith. He is the example of our faith. Uh, Look with me again at Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 2, He says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of faith. Here we go who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. And so now we're being given an example of His... uh, 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 um, We're giving a, a statement here of His example. We're given His activity. What did He do? How did He do it? He endured the cross, despising the shame. Sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We'll focus more closely on that, Lord willing, next time we're in Hebrews. But that's what it's telling us here. It's giving us invaluable principles for how we can run the race with endurance by fixing our eyes on Jesus. Because in doing that, we understand that Jesus is our model. He is our outline. He is the plumb line. He is the standard That we want to follow. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. We can learn at least three things 
from Jesus about the race, the race that we're in. Number one, what we can call the inspiration of the race. Did you see it there? It says, who for the joy set before him. In other words, Jesus had the, he had the perspective that this awful race that was marked out before him, as he called it, this cup that he had to drink, right? The life that he lived and the death that he died, that standing behind that life and death principle, that all of his suffering, that all of his agony, standing behind that was the joy principle. You see that? The joy principle. I would say this. Every time you suffer in the Christian life, every time you go through a trial, every time you go through a disappointment or a disillusionment, remember that for every pain there is a counter joy that far outweighs any pain that you're going to go through in this life. The glory that was set before Him far exceeded the pain, the agony. Of the cross. And Jesus, this is the, this is the glorious thing about it. Ready? Jesus desires to share that joy with us. Once again, John chapter 17, I'll take you back there again. Because what is at stake here? And this sort of kind of shatters. By the way, this is where moralism comes to an end. This is where, to use the, the language of Michael Horton, where moralistic, therapeutic, deistic Christianity comes to an end. And uh, he says it in one of those orders, right? It's not just moralism. It's not just Christianity. It's just for therapy, as so many people go to church for therapeutic reasons, but they really have absolutely no communion with God. But that's where it comes to an end. Because what is the ultimate objective of our race? It's not simply... Because heaven is the place where we find the absence of the things that we do not like. Pain, suffering, disease, evil, sin, death. It's more than that, right? It's not just what heaven is not that we're running for, right? You ever, you ever feel like that's why you're running? You're running so that these, all this awful stuff will be over one day? Certainly that's part of it. But beyond that, brothers and sisters, the objective, the goal of the race is communion with God. I can't overstate that. Look at John 17, verse 22. This is what I mean when Jesus aims to share this with us. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one. Just as we are one. See the intimacy of communion. That's the whole purpose. I and them and you and me. That they may be perfected in unity. I mean this just goes right along with our Sunday school lesson, right? So that the world may know that you sent me and love them. Even as you have loved me. Father, isn't this a remarkable word by Jesus here? Listen now. Father, I desire. I like that. Because that gives us kind of a, like a little insight into the self-consciousness of Jesus Christ, the God-man. What, what was an, what was an impulse in his heart? Epithumia. What was a passion in his heart? And the passion was this, that they also, those that you gave me, that they may be with me where I am, 
so that they may see my glory. Look at that, right? Which you have given me. Oh, wow. He desires, he desires to share his triumphant heavenly glory with his people. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Oh, righteous father. Although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and I will make it known, so that, watch this, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Don't you get a sense that what Jesus is talking about here is his desire to be in communion with his people? I, how do I say it more intense than that? I, I grope for language to, to, that, that will adequately uh, uh, illustrate to us that our God is a God of the most intimate communion imaginable. What was the tabernacle all about? Why did God condescend to pitch a tent? Right? A tent with curtains. What is that all about? I'll tell you what it's about. It's about His desire to dwell with us. It's about His desire to enclose us. I almost did something, but then I thought, you know what, that would be too seeker sensitive, I'd get in trouble. I was going to have Robert or somebody back there, I was going to have Robert or someone back there, you know, d- you know, dim the lights, pull the blinds down, shut all the lights in here, close the doors. That's what the tabernacle did. He, he curtained us in. Right? For what purpose? Because he wants to be with us. Doesn't that boggle your mind? I don't belong in that tabernacle. Are you kidding me? Do you know who I am? And yet God, in his infinite mercy and grace, has condescended to such a degree that he's willing to become like his people, a a tent dweller, to be with us in perfect harmony and communion and holy covenantal bond that cannot be broken. That's a whole other sermon, and you know how I love to talk about that, but that's really what's going on here. That heaven and the joy that is set before us is Finally, undiminished, undiminishable, unbreakable union and communion with God forever. You want to talk about a perspective that will get you through your trials. That will do it. If that doesn't do it, you're not saved. That's kind of like a Paul Washer moment. I mean, okay, you need to grow. You need to grow. You may not be saved. Because what I'm saying is I have nothing else to encourage you with. What temporal, what temporal, what temporal thing can I encourage you with more than that? I can't. I can't. The alleviation of human suffering, medicine, the advances of science, all of these things are nothing. What people need to hear is not your cancer is healed. What you need to hear is you have eternal communion with God ahead of you. Now that should be your joy. That's what I mean. Therapeutic, moralistic deism falls apart. Cannot be for that. He gives us, therefore, 
the inspiration of the race. But he also, another thing we can learn about Jesus and this race is the reality of the race. The reality of the race. Because, what does he endure? He endured the cross despising the shame. And no question about it, Jesus went through and endured through a shameful public display of suffering that is unimaginable. As the book of Acts says, that He was taken by wicked hands and murdered. And so, therefore, we have to remember that there's no, there's no sense of, right, a sort of optimism here that is not realistic. I mean, what we're saying here is that the race entails a cross. What kind of race is this? It's a cross-bearing race. And therefore, because it means that we bear a cross, it means like Jesus, we must be ready to endure ridicule, divisions, betrayals, sufferings, family, friends turning on you, betraying you. Matter of fact, Calvary makes this so clear what's entailed in this, right? Calvary makes it so clear that the path laid out for us is the path of death and suffering. It may sound like a morbid worldview, but it's not. Because the path of the cross is the path of glory. As a matter of fact, because we bear a cross, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 31, I die daily. That's what it entails. That's what you're going to get when you genuinely want to live a godly life. What does Paul say? You will suffer persecution. Matter of fact, Paul speaks in a similar thought when he says in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may, same race metaphor, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. What did Paul just say? I don't count my life dear to myself in this world. Matter of fact, what does my life consist of in this world? I die daily. Daily deaths. Daily suffering. Daily cross-bearing. Jesus said, if you don't pick up your cross and follow me, you are not worthy to be my disciple. If you have somehow... As so many people do, if you have somehow constructed a theology that is, you know, uh, 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 sort of rid or or that is devoid of suffering, you have a false gospel. You, You have a false understanding of Christianity. This is why the word of faith and wealth and health and name it and claim it type of gospel that is so prevalent all over the world. This is why that type of teaching and that kind of theology is so evil. Because it is completely the opposite of what Jesus said we should expect. Lastly, lastly, we also see from Jesus' example, and I know I'm going a little extra this, this week, but that's okay. The race, excuse me, the reward of the race, that's the final thing, because he says here, finally Jesus, uh, or actually here back in Hebrews uh, 12, he says that he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We could even ask and say, well, what does that have to do with us? What, what that has to do with us is that we're following in His steps. 
What that has to do with us is that this is the exact pattern that we will follow in our own lives. It is the suffering before the glory. What does what does the apostle Peter say in First Peter chapter one verse eleven that the prophets were searching to see the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. But it's not the glory before the suffering. The same thing for us. We will not have the joy unmitigated of heaven without going through our own path of suffering. It will not happen. See how the author of Hebrews is preparing, he's preparing us for this awesome race. However, as we think of enthronement theology, exaltation theology, what, what, what we can take comfort in is this. Number one, it is the exalted and enthroned Christ that stands in solidarity with His people. He is with us. He is, we're, we're one with Him. He is our forerunner. You know what the, you know what the language of forerunner is saying? It's saying is we're connected to Him. We're attached to our captain, our leader. He went before us, but His going before us is only the fact that we are on the train right behind Him. He stands in solidarity with His people. It also means at least this, that like Jesus, we will experience absolute, total vindication. I love this because I read, uh, you know, I read Voice of the Martyrs. I read, you know, testimonies of missionaries that suffer around the world. I'm always looking for persecution stories online and things like that. And it just, I love the idea that not one drop of a martyr's blood will go unvindicated. Finally, therefore, let's turn to Second Thessalonians chapter 1 for me to show you this. What does it mean for Jesus to be at the highest place of privilege and power? Privilege and power. It means not only that we will be vindicated, but that those who are not His will be punished. And in that, we are to take great comfort. This is, again, where the Bible has to reshape our thinking. Right? Where it is part of the gospel that Christ returns to defeat our enemies. Look at this. Second Thessalonians chapter one verse six. For after all, it is, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those that afflict you. Wow. Talking about leaving room for vengeance. Right? For God's vengeance. For God to avenge. To give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire and cataclysmic return of Christ dealing out retribution. Listen to that language to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. The fact that Jesus ran this race, He suffered and died, He was risen again, He was exalted to the right hand of God, means that He is going to vindicate us. It means that He is going to repay all of our enemies perfect justice. In the end, the race means we will be delivered, we will be rewarded, we will be vindicated, and we will be glorified. The race we're running right now at times may seem grueling. It may seem agonizing. It may feel as if you're, you're getting ready to drop. 
You ever ran a race? Sometimes you feel, or you ever play ball? You ever done something where you exhibited so much exertion, you're literally ready to drop? I was watching a basketball, you know, it's the all-star weekend. I was watching an interview with a certain basketball player, and he said that uh, there was a final series that he was a part of. And in that final series, he says, I was looking down at my legs, telling my legs, move, and they wouldn't move. (laughs) This is how exhausted he was. He couldn't tell his legs to move anymore. What a perfect illustration of the Christian life at times. I can't tell my soul to get up. I can't tell myself, get up, get the Bible, read the Bible. I don't feel like I have strength to crawl to His commandments and to look upon His law so that I might be revived. But the reality is, if you do, then you will find the sustenance that you need to continue to run the race. Brothers and sisters, crawl if you must. Because Jesus is a sympathetic high priest ready to deal out grace and mercy to help us in time of need. This is the Savior that we follow. This is our, this is our high priest. Let's pray. Father, we confess openly before you now that at times we feel like that athlete. We can't even lift our hands to pick up our Bible. We tell our body to move. It doesn't want to respond. We tell our souls to worship. They don't want to, it doesn't want to worship. And so Lord, we pray. We, we need you. We need you every hour as we sing. Every moment of every day. And let it be that we derive our strength from gazing not at our inadequacies, not at our failures, our sins and our faults but in an act of repentance that we fix our gaze on Jesus Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Oh, Lord. I know that we would derive so much strength if we just did that. Help us. Would you not help us to do that? By the power of your Spirit, for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.